0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Schmidt. Before we start today, I want to give you all an update on what's been going on at Optive. Right now, we're entering a new phase where our content will be distributed through Alpha News and High Point Church. We love both these partners and are excited to see where this all goes. With that being said, there are going to be a couple of changes. In the past, Optive Theology Podcast has uploaded podcasts somewhat sporadically. That ends today. We'll now be uploading on a consistent schedule. The schedule will look like this. On every other Monday, we will upload a podcast as part of our new series called Great Theologians, where I will be sitting down with experts to talk about great historical theologians. The next Monday will be a testimony podcast. Then, on Wednesdays, Nick and I will be releasing a regular Optive Theology podcast that will answer a theological or cultural question. On Fridays, we will be releasing either a bonus episode or a regular topical episode. And in addition to the new schedule, Optive now has a fully functioning website at www.optivenetwork.com. O-P-T-I-V-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. The site will have articles written and released every other Monday on the great theologians by the experts and authors that I interview. We will also have philosophical, economic, and cultural essays and articles releasing every week. So make sure you go to Facebook and Twitter and follow at Optive Network or click the link in the bio and go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter so that you never miss a podcast or article. And finally, thank you all for listening and enjoy our first Great Theologians episode. Everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast My name is Andy Schmidt And I'm here with David Devil. David, thanks so much for joining us Thank you um, So this is the first episode in a new series that we're doing Called Great Theologians Where we're going to go through um, Great Theologians from G.K. Chesterton to C.S. Lewis To Martin Luther And some things that might seem contradictory Doing a G.K. Chesterton and then a Martin Luther But, but I think we're going to go back and, and kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into some of these these great figures in the Christian in Christian history, and so the first one that we're starting with is G.K. Chesterton, and um, you're kind of an expert on G.K. Chesterton. So, do you want to introduce people to who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, so uh, as Andy said, I'm Dave Devil. I teach here in the University of St. Thomas in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, in the Catholic Studies Department. It's an interdisciplinary uh, Catholic liberal education program. We have majors and minors and an a, a MA program. Uh, and I edit a journal that we publish called Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, which is interdisciplinary articles touching on basically every topic under the sun, especially as it connects to the Catholic tradition. And that's interpreted broadly I mean we've had Protestant authors We even have a couple of members of our board At least one uh, who are Protestants Uh, But uh, we, we are interested in everything And then the third thing that I do is is I'm the uh, co-director of the Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy, which is a, uh, a, co- a co-organization a that we have with the University of St. Thomas Law School. So I'm glad
0: to be here with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, so I guess let's just jump right into it. Uh, could you give us a brief introduction to who J.K. Chesterton was and kind of what set him apart from other men of his time? Yeah,
1: so Chesterton was born in 1874, uh, so he was, he was a child Victorian. His parents were uh, baptized. Anglicans, but his earliest memories were actually going to a Unitarian church. So, you know, you might think of him as a kind of a liberal Protestant growing up. Um, He was not... He was a brilliant child. He did not go to he did not go to public schools. You know, if you know C. S. Lewis or some of these right. figures, who went to these public boarding schools, Chesterton did not do that. His parents sent him to the St. Paul School, which was a day school, same place where John Milton went. Um, he wasted a lot of his time, uh, and but people knew that he was brilliant. He ended up going to art school instead of going to Oxford or Cambridge, and it was during his time in art school at the Slade School of Art that this was in the the so-called fandaciacla the the you know the time of the 1890s the decadence oscar Wilde and huysmans and all of these figures uh, that a lot of people were going in this sort of nihilist direction and he was tempted in this direction um, and he began to get involved in a cult and things like that, uh, but something pulled him back from that, and he began to actually think again about about God and indeed about Christ. Even though, as I said, he'd been kind of raised more in a loosey goosey Unitarian atmosphere. Um, at the end of at the end of that time, he he ended up getting a job in publishing that his father had secured for him, and he met two two figures who really were influential in him coming to a full bodied Christian faith. Uh, the first is known to some people, Hilaire Belloc, the poet and essayist, controversialist travel writer who was a a Catholic who had a French father and an English mother. And Belloc became friends with him and he had a fiery spirit, you know, hot for social justice. Chesterton was kind of in that sort of, you know, loose socialist circuit at the time. Uh, But the other one was a young woman named Frances Blogg, who was four years older than Chesterton, and he fell in love with her. And she was Uh, an Anglican believer of a kind of Anglo-Catholic stripe. And he said, you know, she was the first person that he ever met who actually went to church every week and seemed to practice this sort of thing. Um, So through their influence, as well as the influence of a number of Anglo-Catholic theologians of the time, Chesterton started to become what he said, Orthodox. And uh, it was in 1906 that he wrote a book called Heretics uh, that, described a lot of the sort of the popular goofy ideas of the day yeah. and he was challenged by uh, one of his critics to he said look anybody can pick at other people's uh, bad ideas, but why don't you tell, tell us your creed? And so in 1908, he published Orthodoxy, which was, as he said, a slovenly autobiography, something that was designed to tell about, uh, about Christianity as the key to human existence, because it provided for a double need that we have. And that double need yeah. is for adventure and a sense that we've come home. And so he provided a freshness in that book that I think kind of astonished people. Um, and that's probably still one of his most famous books, even though he's very well known uh, for his detective fiction, the Father Brown stories, his biographies of figures like St. Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas, and of course, his his well-known 1930 work, The Everlasting Man, which attempted to tell the uh, universal history of the world through a Christian lens, as opposed to H. G. Wells outline of history, which is a sort of evolutionist thing.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, so you mentioned that Chesterton through some of these relationships that he had, through his through through this woman that he fell in love with who was four years older than him and through co-worker, kind of was introduced to some of the Catholic ideas. Mm-hmm. But do you know how Chesterton ended up totally converting to Catholicism and what influences really formed his theology overall? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, if you read if you read Orthodoxy Uh, you can tell he's going in a certain direction. He kind of, you know, kind of like C.S. Lewis does in Mere Christianity. He kind of punts on the question of, how the church's authority structure works. But yeah. uh, but it, it's pretty clear that he was le- he was going toward Rome in a certain way, even by 1908. Um, and he, like I said, he had good friends like Hilaire Belloc, the poet and controversialist. He had another one, Maurice Baring, who was a diplomat, who was one of the people who introduced Russian literature to the, to, to the English people and started getting that translated. Uh, he met Father John O'Connor, a priest who was the the uh, sort of the model for his father Brown stories, and he was he was amazed. I mean, the reason why he started these stories was because he was at a party and he meets this priest, and uh, people get around to talking about some sort of a cult thing, and uh, this priest Monsignor O'Connor says, "Oh no, no, that's not how how they do it. They do it like this," and he thinks, "Well, how is it that that so, you know a priest would know about this?" And uh, the priest said, "Well, you know, you learn a lot of things in the confessional and dealing dealing with these penitents." So, so he was being driven in that direction uh, by friendships and relationships. Even the form of Anglicanism that he was in was of an Anglo-Catholic variety. You know, that branch of the Anglican Church that that you know often followed very closely along with what Roman Catholics were doing. So he did not actually uh, officially enter the Roman Catholic Church until 1922, and the reason for that is. Is because Francis, his wife, who he says brought the cross to him yeah. was not ready to do that. But finally, she said, you know, look, Gilbert <laughs> you need to just do this because otherwise you're just gonna like drive yourself crazy don't wait for me right. she'd ended up uh, uh, entering the, the Catholic Church herself a few years later uh, but it was it was a kind of a long process uh, through a number of these these interesting friendships through the thoughts that he was forming um, and and his conviction that uh, that the historic Catholic Church, uh, you know, still still bore the promises and it claimed the authority that he thought was essential for any true freedom.
0: So, OK, so me and my wife are reading through orthodoxy right now and they call Chesterton the prince of um, paradox, the prince of paradoxes. And you can see it clearly in, in orthodoxy. Do you want to explain why they call him the prince of paradoxes?
1: Yeah, he, he talked about uh, paradox as the truth standing on its head. And what he was re- particularly referring to is the fact that There's some, so often in life, there seem to be two things that are true and they don't seem to go together and it's figuring out how these things that go together, uh, uh work uh that actually sort of breeds thoughts. He thought that that this was the the key like I said he the the the, the hint behind orthodoxy about why he thought Christianity fit the human person is because we have a kind of dual need. Yeah. Uh we we need to be on an adventure, but we also want to feel at home at the same time. So that so even that that human nature is paradoxical. Yeah. Uh, we can be monstrous and we can be kind. We can, you know, everything is about this sort of balance. Some people call it um, in the way that certain medieval theologians called it a coincidence of opposites. You know, you don't, you don't sort of like get a mushy middle where you go halfway, but instead you have both truths going hard at the same time.
0: It's one of the examples that I feel like would be just as Christians would be that we are, we're we're sinners and we're also made in the image of God Mm -hmm. where those two things seem like completely opposite. And yet they're both within us Mm -hmm. in some capacity. So I feel like that would be one that plays into it.
1: Yeah. And he, I mean, he thought that what's interesting about it is that uh, we often think that, uh, that well we you know if you're if you enter into christianity you know you'll get the sort of the the rough side sawed off but he yeah. he saw in jesus and his his chapter on 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 jesus's life in orthodoxy or excuse me not orthodoxy but the everlasting man he does a little bit of an orthodoxy too but in the everlasting man is about the jesus who we sort of never think about you know too often jesus is portrayed either one way or another yeah but he is the gent you know the gentleman who uh, who is kind to adulterers and to children and uh, to the hurting and the and the, the lame but he's also the same man who had you know could furiously drive out the ta- the uh, the money changers out of the temple and could speak to the pharisees in these terms that are pretty rough i mean you know, we would say savage <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so Chesterton said right at the very heart of this is this, this paradox. And it's fitting that there's a paradox in him because at the heart of reality, the central mystery of the Christian faith is the incarnation, which is itself truly God and truly man in one, in one person, Jesus Christ.
0: Absolutely. Well, I feel like, yeah, with these paradoxes, Chesterton, and when I'm reading him, I feel this way almost seems to confuse me in a lot of ways. I'm just like, what the heck did I just read? I got to go read over it again and again and again, and then maybe I'll get a little bit of knowledge out of it. But what do you think his effects or the what what effect did his writings have on the culture in England in the 1900s? Because I can imagine people were confused and maybe frustrated with, because with the paradox, it feels like there's a lack of clarity, but also... In Scripture, Jesus speaks in parables, and sometimes we see a lack of clarity there, and actually, there's some of the clearest stories we we can see after we take our time and you know kind of dig into them with wisdom and knowledge after a long period of time. but Chesterton seemed to be a character that was confusing and frustrating but w- w- how did his writings affect the culture
1: well I mean it, you know he, he was well loved I mean he was probably one of the most well loved figures and part of the reason was that he was not afraid to debate the great atheists and skeptics of his time I mean, H.G. Wells I mentioned was a very good friend of his um, he de- he debated uh, his friend George Bernard Shaw the playwright who was you know a sort of a vegan socialist you know that kind of person and so he was well loved for the fact that he he had a sort of a jolly, you know. He's called the jolly journalist, and he was, he was a, a sort of this prince of paradox who wasn't afraid to, to get in it with other people and joyously proclaim the gospel without sort of sawing off its rough edges, but instead sort of highlighting them with this paradoxical style. And his influence was, I think, uh, was quite notable on a lot of different people, even those who didn't follow him. Uh, you know, Wells said one time of Chesterton that if I ever get into heaven, it's it's only going to be because of my association with Gilbert. But among the younger generation, he was incredibly influential. Uh, if people have read C.S. Lewis's memoir "Surprised by Joy," Lewis says in there, you know, a, a thoroughgoing atheist cannot be too careful of his reading, and uh, you know, and he's talking about what kind of led to his own conversion in 1930 31. And, you know, one of the most important books for him was Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Same goes with Dorothy Sayers, who was the daughter of a clergyman, but who was sort of drifting away from faith. Um, a, lot of these, a lot of these figures that we now know uh, who are very influential— Christian thinkers were influenced by Chesterton, yeah. who who converted them, right. in a sense, through his writings. Yeah.
0: Well, and it feels like Chesterton was even more than just a theologian. Um, I mean, he had his takes on politics and economics and all these different things, philosophies. And so how did he impact the more political or philosophical culture of, of that time as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Dale Alquist, who's the president of the Society of G.K. Chesterton, you know, you can find his show on EWTN, the uh, Catholic television. Network. But Dale likes to call Chesterton the complete thinker because he was, you know, he was not trained as a theologian or anything else. He took a few courses at University College London and then kind of did this art school thing. But he he was an incredibly broad reader, and he commented because he was a journalist, he commented on pretty much everything under the sun. Um, in in literature he was he was very well known as a critic and many people thought that some of his works on Charles Dickens are some of the best criticism Dickens ever had but in politics and economics too he was also influential p- particularly in certain christian and and catholic circles he was a, a fan he was a proponent of what he called distributism which we he thought of as a kind of a third way between sort of gross capitalism which he understood as being the domination of of our, uh, our economic and political life sure. by large corporations and millionaires uh, versus communism in which you know the government sort of co-ops them. Um, now, it's not clear that he was as influential in that way, but I think today people are looking back, and I, I'm not a complete proponent of everything he, he says in this regard, but he had a keen understanding of the nature of power and how economic power and political power Uh, can be united. And that's something that I think many people are looking at today with the role of big tech and government and the finance industry and things like that. He called them hudge and gudge. And for whatever reason, gudge does not represent government. It represents big business. And hudge is big government. But he says, you know, hudge and gudge work together and create this sort of power structure that keeps ordinary people down. So, you know, like I say, people are looking at him again, even if they don't, agree with every prescription they're starting to look at his vision of that that uh collusion of of economic and and government power
0: seems like he's like a more comprehensive figure he's taking all these different things in um so chesterton has wrote written several books and i mean what would be what would you consider to be your favorite work of gk chesterton
1: i, I think my favorite work is a, a 1912 kind of short novel called man alive and it's a kind of a parable of a number of uh sort of twenty twenty somethings who are living in a boarding house at the top of a hill in London um, and so it's a little bit like friends you know all these yeah, sort of yeah. single people living this I mean not quite as much sex but but they uh, you know but they're living these kind of meaningless lives and they're they're disconnected from each other and a figure named innocent Smith comes into their life and turns their lives upside down and opens them to the reality of their own dignity and their own value um, and then he blows out again but it's 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 a wonderful fictional work that gets at a lot of Chesterton's basic philosophy about how joy and gratitude are at the at the heart of any really human existence and those are the things that lead us to be active and free and to, you know and take on our political uh, political role in life so that's probably my favorite even though I'm sure it's not not everybody's favorite
0: so. right yeah and I, I didn't even heard of it until you just said that which is awesome um so I gotta ask so when we're looking at Chesterton and and I guess just how he was such a comprehensive human being, because it wasn't just theology or politics, it was he was trying to or philosophy he was trying to take all these different things and, and create a worldview, which I feel like is Almost the exact opposite of what we do today and my generation does today where we try to compartmentalize everything and pretend like our what we believe about Christianity can be different than what we believe politically and it can be different than what we believe philosophically and it's like so backwards. And so in what ways um, do you think that we could learn from Chesterton's overall worldview and trying to be a comprehensive person um, and how he looked at things because we I mean like you said earlier we got to look at the paradoxes of life there's many of them but what are some ways that that I think or that you think that younger people like myself can try to become more of a comprehensive person like GK
1: mm-hmm. well I mean for one thing uh, you know he's not afraid to actually dive into the stories themselves not afraid to dive into the big works and lend his interpretation and I think he uh, you know he he has that amateur, you know, I mean, the root of amateur is, is, of course, to love. And he actually loved digging into these things. And he didn't just, you know, he wasn't snotty about just doing the classics either. He also was looking at pop culture uh, of his day. He has famous defenses of penny dreadfuls, which were sort of these, you know, moralistic sort of shoot em up bad guy stories kind of things. Um, so he was looking at all of that and he was not afraid To go into every single aspect of culture, and he never left behind his Christian convictions. Um, That didn't mean that he didn't make distinctions when they were necessary. He thought that that was incredibly important, Uh, but he also wanted to make clear that he wanted to approach things from a distinctively Christian perspective. And where there is, uh, you know, a particular Christian take on something, you can't leave that behind and pretend that you're not a Christian. Um, He, you know, when he gets into his political questions, he's very much about centering the family. And that was what he worried about, about this sort of, you know, hudge and gudge, this big government, big business, is that it was crowding out um, institutions that were given to us by God, including the family, the church, and of course, he believed in the the local community as well. And he didn't think that just as a sort of philosophical approach, but in part because, uh, you know, Christ told us to love our neighbors. And, well, you can't, you know, unless you have neighbors, you can't love them. So he wanted people to be to be immersed in all of these subjects, but immersed at distinctly as, as a Christian.
0: So what did Chesterton think would happen if we started to d- dismantle the family unit, the church unit, and even the local community unit? These things that, you, like you said, God gave us as a gift um, and, and that we see in our culture today— we're trying as hard as we can to dismantle these things, more sp- especially the the family. I would say. So, did Chesterton have any beliefs of of what the result would be of dismantling these types of things? Yeah, he. I
1: mean, he thought tyranny
0: uh, was what was going to
1: happen, and that's why you know that's especially why he defended the rights of the uh, of the small community and uh, and of the family is because he thought that they were the bulwark against tyranny. And he, you know, I mean, you have to remember that in in history, this is. The late 19th century and early 20th century is the beginnings of these sort of large scale administrative states that especially do social welfare. And he saw a danger in the fact that government was starting to inject itself – more and more into the family in terms of its authority now you know I mean he he didn't doubt that there were problems that you know child protective services or what you know whatever the English equivalent was could deal with but he was he was very worried that a lot of times what was happening was simply um, this sort of Leviathan state that was sucking up everything and he thought that the answer would be that we would be left poor and without without the true liberty that we should have not just as Englishmen or Americans uh, but but as children of God who can serve God in the way that our conscience directs us
0: absolutely well how how do you think Chesterton's writings still inform our understanding of topics such as government politics economics philosophy and theology today and I know we've kind of went over that a little bit but but overall I guess what would be uh the the larger influence that Chesterton has had on generations that came after him
1: yeah, I think I think well, I mean, I think you know you brought it up with the Prince of Paradox that he's somebody who was uh, completely unafraid of looking at all sides of 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 the uh, the Christian story, and uh, and what the Christ, what Christians ought to believe. Um, that's you know that's partly why he became a, a Roman Catholic. He felt that the the Catholic tradition was a sort of a large, balanced, and and developed uh, understanding of of the original gospel. Um, and he wanted to look at all sides of those things and get get at every single aspect of it, both the, the sides, you know, authority, you know, one of his chapters in Orthodoxy, authority and the adventurer. And, you know, the idea that we have to accept legitimate authority and see that legitimate authority... Uh, actually, gives us freedom because it gives us limits within which we can play the game of life in a serious way, and I think that's I think that's something that many people discover, and they and they like that that he's he's not some facile sort of like let me do what I want to do, yeah. but nor is he a sort of well knuckle under to the you know yeah. his understanding is that authority gives us the freedom to act, and uh, you know uh, you know some one thing that I wish were more influential. Is the is his own personal witness? So there's a you know there's a people have been trying to start a cause for him to be declared a saint in the Catholic Church, oh, and right. you know there are certain difficulties that you know with that, and it's uh, it's more difficult. But it, as a person, he was remarkably charitable, and everything that we know about him is that he would give to friends in need, and he would give to basically anybody who asked. I mean, he you know despite the fact that he didn't look much like Saint Francis of Assisi or one of these kinds of people, he was he had that same spirit. Of what he called promiscuous charity, oh, whoever you know, whoever asked, he he gave, yeah. and he quite often helped out families, you know, with you know, in in very secretive ways. Uh, he didn't let the right hand know what the left hand was doing. Uh, he just sort of handed stuff over and forgot about it. So I, you know, I hope that his personal example, as well as his his understanding of the paradoxical and the the complete and total, we might say, Catholic idea of of Christian faith. Is, is something that will continue to exercise influence on people.
0: Well, I should have asked this earlier, but I'll ask it now, is what, what was the reason for for Chesterton to choose the path of Catholicism compared to whatever Lutheranism or wh- whatever else there is why did he choose Catholicism i know you mentioned because of the the rooted history and foundation of the gospel and and, and that and but was there any other um i mean cuz this podcast and for the people listening to it this generally we don't do things with with any catholic i think you're the first yeah. catholic that we've ever had on the podcast well, so. you
1: said you had michael miller on right and michael matheson
0: miller will be on soon yeah oh,
1: we'll be on soon. Okay. yeah yeah uh yeah no chesterton uh he really uh it was it was his looking at both scripture and history that he thought that there was a kind of development of the teaching and he saw in he saw even in in the role of the papacy, something interesting that there was, you know, that he was a kind of successor of Peter insofar as popes are ordinary men and flawed and fallible. Um, he talked about Peter, you know, the original Peter being, uh, you know, kind of a shuffler and a snob, a guy who's hot tempered and, and these sorts of things. And he thought that, uh, that the, the Catholic vision actually embraced, um, all of the truths and that it was the, it was the institution that was capable of doing it. He called, he called the Catholic church, the trysting place of all truths. In other words, all of the different sides of, of these things, the philosophical movements um, and, you know, all of the different angles on scripture, they come together in a kind of interesting, interesting mix. And he thought that it also claimed the authority uh, that the new Testament church claimed. So it was, you know, it was kind of, it was a, it was a complex arm. He's, For theologians who sort of study apologetics, he's often um, ranked with John Henry Newman, another Englishman who was a Catholic convert, as one of those who uh, followed a cumulative probability path. In other words, he made his arguments not based on sort of very strict, you know, narrow syllogisms, but instead on looking at the whole picture and seeing that it fit together. And he thought that the whole thing came together in the Catholic Church, um, in a way that it didn't come through in any in, in, any, other, in any other group, even though he admired many people from, yeah. from, from these
0: groups. What do you think he would say to the modern Catholic Church if he was here today?
1: Yeah. Well, I think he would say that, uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think he would have lots to say, and he would probably say, because, you know, much of the Catholic church, particularly in the, in the U S and Europe and even South America has sort of followed the way of kind of secularism. They've taken for granted um, all of the, the cultural capital that's been built up because of theological capital. And of course now we're seeing it all kind of burned down and, and uh, you know he was one of these one of these thinkers who always wanted people to know you, you can't sort of saw off the branch you're sitting on and i think he would say that many catholics including especially catholic theologians and and even you know even some priests and bishops um, have been sawing off the branch that they're sitting on by not paying attention to or even denying uh, you know, what, what the church has taught and how, how she's operated. And in so far doing that is that she's cut off her connection to the, to the vine Christ. Um, so I think that's, that would probably be his thing is, <laughs> you know, I came to the church because of what she actually taught and is, uh, don't, you know, don't be in, but not, not of the church
0: and of Christ. Totally. Well, I'll ask you one more question. Cause I, th- and I just thought of this, um, what would you say is your favorite Chesterton quote and why?
1: Um, uh, that's a good there are so many quotations. If you go online, you can find hundreds of them. Um, I, Well, let me give you since I said my favorite book was the was uh, Man Alive. I'll give you one uh from there. Uh and this is a line of Innocent Smith, this sort of character who uh, awakens everybody to reality themselves and indeed to God. And he says, he says, uh, you know, all that all that glitters is gold. Uh which, you know, we always hear all, you know, all is not gold that glitters. Yeah. And he's like, no, the glitter itself is the thing for which we give we give thanks and it's meant to indicate the tremendous joy and the and the wonder that we can find in reality all of which is created by by God um some people have have suggested that you know in in the catholic church when you're named when certain saints are named a doctor of the church you know like saint augustine or saint thomas aquinas they get a kind of a name like the doctor of uh you know saint thomas aquinas is the doctor the the angelic doctor and uh uh, you know they've suggested that Chesterton if he had a name uh, you know he would be uh, you know he would be something like you know Gilbert of the Creator or something like yeah. that and he saw the joy in the creation um, and and it was basically seeing that you know it's not the outward circumstances that make things precious to us, but their very existence themselves. And, you know, it's closely closely connected to another uh, quote right in that chapter, which is, look around you and you will see the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, But too often we're kind of bent in upon ourselves and we don't look up and see what God has provided for us right in front of us, uh, which is, you know, all of this, grandeur and the people in front of us right who bear the image of God and, and can become Christ to us if we look properly
0: absolutely well I feel like that's like a perfect way to, to kind of close this out and um, do you want to tell people—I know you have your own podcast. Do you want to tell people yeah. about that and what that is? Yeah. So we uh, we started a podcast about a
1: year and a half ago here at the Center for Catholic Studies called the Deep Down Things podcast. And uh, my friend Liz Kelly, who's a popular writer and speaker in Catholic circles, she and I interview people, usually people who've written in our journal, Logos, the Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture, but occasionally other people who, who we know who are interesting to talk about. Uh, basically any topic under the sun and how it's connected uh, to the Catholic Christian faith. And so you can find us at patreon.com backslash deep down things. And we're available on all the regular yeah. podcast things, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And I don't, you know, I don't even know why yeah. my, my producer deals with that, right. but, but just look for us deep yeah. down
0: things for sure. Yeah. And, and go check that out. And David, thanks so much for doing this podcast. This is awesome. I think this is exactly kind of what I wanted this to be like. I wanted it to be long enough to make us think, but not to, we, I mean, we We probably could have talked about gk for like four hours if we wanted to but we we stuck to about 30 35 minutes which i think is great so thanks so much for coming on and doing this and um if you're listening to this make sure you like subscribe follow make sure to share this with your friends and we'll see you guys in the next one goodbye